God, we are thankful for our time together tonight. I'm thankful for the privilege of uh, having the chance to sort of serve the meal tonight. Thankful for what you show us about Israel, about ourselves, about you. Thankful in advance for what you're going to show us tonight. These books are so um, neglected and they're so rich and they show us so much of a story that is awesome. We are thankful. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears and eyes that will hear and see what we need to hear and see tonight. Lord, ultimately tonight we'll end the we'll begin the night and start the, or, and end the night with the the really hearts that are thankful for a true and good and proper king who is squarely seated and reigning and ruling right now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Something we're doing with the fifth and sixth graders that is helpful for me, and I think it's going to be helpful for them down the road. I don't know if y'all are doing that as adults, but it's something that's kind of cool, I think, is putting a word to help you learn what a book of the Bible is about. And we spent last week sort of refreshing on that, our class did, and I'm going to ask for their help tonight, putting them on the spot a little bit after only one refresher night. So um, you might be able to, to chime in with a word, I don't know, but the word that comes to mind or the word that they've learned representing the book of Genesis is beginnings, okay? All right? The book of Exodus is Daniel. Deliverance. Good, Katie. Okay. The book of Leviticus. A little different in here tonight. They're like, oh, I'm on stage. And Will, Luke's sitting back there in the back. Luke knows a bunch of these too, and he's sitting back there in the back. <clears throat> Leviticus. You remember what happens a lot in Leviticus? Holiness. Very good. The book of Numbers. Wandering. Yeah. Not wandering, but wandering. <clears throat> the book of Deuteronomy, obedience, very good. The book of Joshua, Luke. Put you on the spot back there. If we were in there, you would totally know. Conquest, conquest, fit the battle of Jericho. Okay, the book of Judges, leadership, very good. The book of Ruth, redeemed, all right. First and second Samuel, listenings, okay? And the uh, first and second Kings, decline, okay? Tonight, as you studied last week, tonight we're going to study really the decline of Israel. We're going to study not in two parts. We're really going to study in some ways what happened to Israel and Judah. If you paid attention last week or you were here last week, you know that the, the kingdom split between north and south last week. What I want to do to sort of get us kind of warmed up to the story context-wise, I'm going to ask just some questions to get us kind of ready. Um, I want you to answer these things. There's no absolute perfect word that I'm looking for. So I want you to feel comfortable interacting with these questions that I'm going to throw out there right now. If you're wrong, it's okay. I mean, there, I'm not going to say that any answer is right because that's not true either, but I'm not looking for a specific word. Okay, it could be a description or it could be a paragraph. All right, I'm okay with that. Where was Israel born? 
Where? What comes to mind? Okay, Abraham, that's, that would be the, the absolute beginnings of Israel. But where would you say Israel was really born, the nation of Israel? Okay, Goshen in uh, Egypt. Our Bibles call it the, fiery fur, the, the furnace of affliction, that they were born in some ways in the furnace of affliction. Okay, if that's where they were born, when was the deliverance? Or when was the delivery? We'll call it that. If we're going to talk about being born, how and when were they actually delivered? When was the birth date? And I'm talking in a general sense. Okay, you, 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 generalized, or you didn't generalize. You went very specific with the very last plague. Look at that in a little larger scale. When would you say that they were born? Through the plagues, absolutely. The plagues, they were these mighty acts of judgment that are really this almost labor pains where God's people are delivered. And it's a beautiful image when you really think about it because where, where did they go right after the Passover? To the Red Sea where the water is broken, breaking water. You know, these little things that we think about every day, seldom do we think about, man, they point to this big story where the water is broken and a people are born and a people are delivered and that's where it happened there through the plagues and then through the Red Sea, okay? What happened after they entered the promised land? We're fast forwarding. We're not going to um, spend time in the wilderness necessarily. Let's, let's go fast forward to the promised land. What happened? How would you describe what happened after they crossed that second body of water, the Jordan, 40 years later? You can be very specific too. What happened next? Jericho. They fit the battle of Jericho, right? Conquest. What happens after that? AI, which is a little taste of things to come in some ways. Because you remember AI didn't go so well, and things aren't going to go so well in the promised land. The word there, the word that we're learning as a class is the word conquest, but really we're going to use that term pretty loosely, right? Can anybody describe really what takes place there, or how would you summarize how the conquest went? Did they eradicate the people as they were supposed to? It was very incomplete. Yeah, very loose definition of the word conquest. And what happened to these lines that were supposed to be very defined, they became very blurry with their neighbors. They began to do what with other wives or other women? Intermarry. And these lines that were supposed to be very defined became very blurry. Now, what did they ask for in 1 Samuel? Fast forward through the judges. Okay, we're kind of making, a, in some ways, a little summary of where we've been as a church through our, New Te- through our Old Testament. Say that again? Yeah, give us a king that looks so we can look just like our neighbors. One that we can touch, one that we can see because we prefer to live by sight rather than by faith. We want a king that's just like our neighbors because they all have these really fancy kings. Well, how did Samuel feel about that? What's one word? Mad. I put hacked. (laughs) Yeah, mad is a good word. Yeah. He's like, man, we have the high king of heaven as a people, and yet they want a human king. What did God say to Samuel? Yeah, give them what they want, and they have to obey. Good. Very good summary. It's It's okay, Samuel. I'm going to give them a king. So what did God give them? King, obviously, who? 
Saul, okay? It's important to start with the big picture tonight because we're going to land at the big picture. I like starting with the big picture, big picture where the people want a king, though they had a king, the high king of heaven. They want a king that they can touch and see that's like their neighbors, so God gave them exactly what they wanted. The story doesn't go so well, though, does it, really, when you think about it? He gives them tall, dark, and handsome in Saul. You remember how they described Saul? What was he? Head, yeah, I mean, the tallest other Israelite came up to Saul's shoulders. So he was a handsome dude, very commanding presence, or must have been. But how did it turn out? It didn't turn out so well, and the whole plan came unglued. Why was that? Why would you say things went bad? Okay, how? Just kind of summarize. Okay, that was the ending moment, but how would you say if he in the beginning is wanting to follow God's plan, how would you describe how that changed? How would you summarize that? Okay, okay. He also seems to want to put himself out there for glory after a while. He's, he's making, making uh, much of himself toward the end of it, when early on he seemed to be small in his own eyes. By the end of it, he's gargantuan, colossal in his own eyes. So things didn't go very well with Saul. So then God gives them who? David, okay? Most of y'all know the story. First Saul, then David. And with David, things are looking much better. With David, things are looking very hopeful. This guy is killing giants. This guy is killing Philistines. This guy is humble. This guy is dancing before the Lord in a loincloth. From all indications, things are going to be very different with this king than they were the last king, right? But then what happens? What happens? It goes downhill how? What, how does it start? Where is David? Where should he be? Fighting. He should be fighting with his troops. He's got a duty and he's got a calling, but instead he's staying home and he's begging out of what he's supposed to be doing. And that led to sin with Bathsheba, adultery, murder, and then strike two, the whole king, earthly king thing is not going so well. The earthly king plan, we could say, is absolutely in the ditch. And then comes Solomon. Maybe Solomon will work out. Remember what Solomon asked for? Wisdom. Was he an old man when he asked for wisdom? You remember how he described himself? I'm but a kid, and I've got to lead this people. I don't have the wisdom to lead this people. So in, in some weird way, he almost had wisdom before he had wisdom in asking for wisdom. So things are looking pretty good. We got this guy named Solomon, and he's wise, and God's going to bless him not only with wisdom, but he's going to bless him with riches and with power. But then what was Solomon's sin? What was it? We studied it just last week. A, bu a bunch of extra wives. Yes, I don't know how, I don't know what he's thinking. He's not. A bunch of wives, one, and a bunch specifically what kind of wives? Foreign wives. Okay, so not only is he, 
is he, is he have more wives than he should have, but he's got foreign wives. The Scriptures say that he's clinging to them. It's an interesting word. Clinging to these foreign wives, and they do what to his heart? You remember what the Scriptures say? Well, what do they do to his heart? They turn his heart away from God. I mean, there's this, this almost posture where it's this descriptor there that his heart is turned completely and absolutely away from God. So what happens when Solomon dies? Fast forward to his death. Summarize it in one, one sentence. The kingdom is split. This is what we studied last week. The kingdom is split between the north this is made up of all but two tribes, which is Israel, and the south, which is Judah, which is made up of who? What two tribes? Judah and, what's my name? Benjamin. That's, not, that's the only way I can remember it. Judah and Benjamin. Now, let me, I need to confess something to you. <clears throat> all these little details and the splitting of the kingdom and, you know, the exile and what nation beats up on who and all that kind of stuff, that has been so blurry and so messy for me for so long. And it's only, honestly, in preparing for these types of studies where things start, start to settle, and it's only after years. But when they start to settle, then you start to read other books like Jeremiah and Lamentations. I just have to be... Is anybody else doing the McShane reading guide right now? Anybody? The little thing we have on the table out there that takes you through four different books at one time where you finish to buy one a year. Y'all need to do that. All right, I'm just going to be really frank and honest with you. I mean, you know, I sent out an email today saying, hey, if you're not going to be here for Wednesday night, I should have just said I had these two emails, you know, where I'm trying to clean up after the first one. I should have just said you're a wicked sinner if you're not going to be here on Wednesday nights. <laughs> I'm going to say it right now because you know I have a smile on my face and I'm halfway joking, but I'm halfway not. You're a wicked sinner if you're not reading through the Bible. On your own, please, that McShane reading guide is so sweet. And it's not the only one out there. You may be on a different plan. You're probably all on a totally different plan. And I'm the only one on McShane. <laughs> but listen, that has nothing to do with teaching and preaching. That just has to do with faith. I mean, that's just feeding. But as I'm reading right now, I just finished up today and yesterday, Jeremiah and Lamentations. And I'm reading there what these prophets are saying well, prophet, specifically Jeremiah, is saying these, this, he's pouring out his heart, and now it's making sense because I know what's going on in Jerusalem when he's saying this. If you don't have a view of this, you don't really know what these books are saying. I mean, it's sort of like picking up a letter in the parking lot and reading it and trying to apply it to your life. You don't know who wrote it. <laughs> you don't know even who it was written to. You don't know why it was written. But you're like, God, this is important because it was written with blood or something, you know. So I'm going to apply this in my life. Now, I'm being facetious. But I want to encourage you. I want to strongly encourage you to really do the work of sorting through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles also, this trying to make sense of how this whole king thing goes. I'm going to show you tonight how important this is to even how you read the Gospels. Something as basic as how you read the Gospels. I'm going to save that. It's a little teaser for later. Okay. The kingdom split up with the north being Israel, being all the tribes minus Judah and Benjamin, and the south is Judah and Benjamin. 
Jeroboam is in the south, Rehoboam, or Jeroboam is in the north, Rehoboam is in the south. And then from that point on, throughout the rest of the book of 2 Kings, is the stories of these kings. Okay, you get good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king. Every now and again, you get a good king, and then you get a row of bad kings. And the same thing happens in the north as happens in the south. And that's really the big picture story of 2 Kings. The book of 2 Kings covers 300 years. 300 years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile into Babylon. And it includes also the destruction of the north, Israel, which happened 150 years or so before that. I'm going to give you some specific dates here in a second. 29 kings are covered in the book of 2 Kings. 29 kings. Some of them Israel, some of them Judah. It's almost like the writer is just, he's going to spend some time dedicating a couple of chapters or whatever, a section to some northern kings, and then he's going to talk about the southern kings, and then the northern kings, and then you pan out, and you pan back, and you back and forth. So you have to kind of keep your eye on the ball. Who are we talking about here? It's helpful to draw a little rudimentary map in front of you. North, Israel. South, Judah. Do this exercise on your own, and you'll grab this. And I mean it. Other things will come to life. And you can even write in who the kings are for the north and who the kings are for the south. You can put a little plus beside the good, good ones and a minus beside the bad ones. Little exercises like that that seem so silly are things that will make things really come to life for you. Some other characters that are in the book, Elijah, Elisha, one of my favorite dudes in the whole Bible, Naaman, because I just love the story of Naaman. I see so much of myself in him. You may remember our Sunday morning referring to Naamanism. Some little things in there that are worth reading that we're not going to spend time on tonight, but are treasures within this book. The two really important events in the book of 2 Kings are the fall of Israel, the north. That takes place in 722 B.C. 722 B.C. And the fall of Judah, which would include Jerusalem, in the south in 587 B.C. 722 B.C., Israel falls to the Assyrians. 580, did I say 722? 722 B.C., the north falls to the Assyrians, Israel. 587 B.C., Judah falls to the Babylonians. Okay? It's so helpful if you sort this stuff out. Some of our prophets, our minor prophets, are prophesying about maybe Israel so if you know who they are, you can read the little introduction probably in the front of any of your study Bibles that'll tell you, um, Amos, for example. I'm pretty sure, I'm not absolutely sure about this, but it's just to give you an example, I'm pretty sure Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel. I could, it could be the opposite, but I'm pretty sure it's to the Israel. But I'm using that for example. It'll help you read those prophets if you're sorting out. Who are they prophesying about? The southern kingdoms or What? Jeremiah, for example, was prophesying primarily about Judah and the southern kingdom. He lived from the time of Josiah all the way through the end of the story. I mean, he lived on into the exile. Okay, so placing him in time helps you read the book. Okay, and this story of these two kingdoms Two kingdoms is a little bit tricky, a little bit cumbersome, but it's worth the work of making sense of it. Whenever we're back in a room together with a wet board next week, we're going to be drawing this on the board, and it's going to be ugly, but they're going to remember it, and we're going to learn it. So I encourage the adults to do the same thing. 
The story of 2 Kings is the nation that Joshua led into the promised land, instead of becoming a witness to surrounding nations, has become an imitation of surrounding nations. That's the heartbreaking story of 2 Kings. Now, chapter 17 is the turning point, so turn there. I'm going to read in chapter 17 in a moment, but I'm going to back up and give you a little bit of context before we read 17. Chapter 17 is where Israel falls to the Assyrians. Israel's in the north. The reason is going to be very vivid here in a moment when I read just a few passages, just a chapter or two in front of chapter 17. Listen to these little excerpts that will give you some sense of what's going on in Israel. Stay in 17 and listen to these excerpts in, verse, in chapter 15. In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. That's a key phrase, which he, as leadership, made Israel to sin. That's going to be an important phrase that we're going to come back to at the end of the night. Another excerpt. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, began to reign in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah. He reigned one month in Samaria, and then Menahem, the son of Gadi, came up from Terza and came to Samaria. He struck down Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and put him to death and reigned in his place. So, so far, just a couple of excerpts in chapter 15. We've got an evil king and we've got a murderer. Let's read a little more. Another excerpt. Verse 17, in the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, began to reign over Israel. He reigned 10 years in Samaria. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 23, in the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahem, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. He reigned two years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He didn't turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Verse 27, in the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, began to reign over Israel in Samaria. He reigned 20 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. Just a few verses in chapter 15 in Israel, you can see things are not going bad. We've got an evil king. We've got a murderer. We've got an evil king. We've got an evil king. We've got an evil king. Things are not going well with the earthly king program in Israel. Let's look and see how they're going in Judah. Look over at chapter Actually, just right here at the end of chapter 15, things might be going pretty good. Let's see. Verse 32. In the second year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. See, he's flipping back and forth between Israel and Judah. He's giving you a marker for who ruled when relative who's ruling in Israel. And that's why if you're not paying attention and keeping your eye on the ball, you can totally be confused. Who are we talking about here, Israel or Judah? Right now we're talking about Judah, the southern kingdom. And Jotham here is reigning. His mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadok, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Sounds pretty good. Things might be going better in the south. Let's read a little bit further in chapter 16. Verse 1, in the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, or, uh, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz, the son of Jotham. Remember, Jotham is a good king. 
Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father had, David had done, but he walked in the way of the kings of in the north, Israel. We just read about those kings. He moved just like they did. He even burned his son as an offering. They had a, a foreign god in that time that was called Moloch. And I've heard this described with Moloch as this big, hollow, metal idol. It was big enough that you could walk up to the face of it, and it had a big furnace in, his, in the center of this thing, and you just throw your baby in. And that's what Jotham's son here does. Jotham, who reigned well, a little light, little, little bitty shiny spot in Judah's story. One generation later, Ahaz is burning his son according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills under every green tree. Every green tree is a phrase that's used often in our Old Testament, especially through the prophets, especially among these minor prophets who are talking about really something specific that's going on in Israel and Judah. And the word, I actually preached a sermon on this on Mother's Day. Mortified about that, but it actually happened on Mother's Day, a whole sermon dedicated to the whoredom of Israel and Judah on Mother's Day. I'll never live that one down. I'm not much of a theme preacher. It just happened to be the next sermon. But man, it's heartbreaking when you think about what's going on in Israel and Judah. And that phrase, under every green tree, what ought to be happening under every green tree ought to be beautiful stuff. But what's happening under every green tree that God has provided, the tree for cover and green as health and life is just throwing the ugly, ugliness in God's face. Here you go, God. Under every green tree, we're going to do what's absolutely contrary to who you are. So then in chapter 17, I told you chapter 17 is really the turning point in the story for Israel. And I don't mean turning point in a good way, beginning in chapter 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, this would be 722 B.C. Remember I told you the year that Israel, the northern kingdom, was going to fall to the Assyrians. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gazan, and in the cities of the Medes. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods. It's almost as if the writer here is saying, is, can you believe this happened? Can you believe our people did this to the God that took us through the furnace of affliction in Egypt and delivered us through the watery ordeal after the mighty acts of judgment called the plagues? He's connecting all the dots here that we have to connect as well. And walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people. And in the customs of the kings of Israel had practiced, and the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places in all their towns. That's where they went to worship foreign gods. From watchtower to fortified city, they set up for themselves pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. 
And there they made offerings on all the high places as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger. And they served idols of which the Lord had said to them, you shall not do this. Yet a good and gracious God, our Lord, warned Israel and Judah. By every prophet, by every seer, turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. But they were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God and made for themselves metal images of two calves and made an Asherah and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal. They burned their sons and their daughters as offerings and used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. And Benjamin is actually included in that. None was left at this point. Israel is gone, exile into Assyria. Did you know there were two exiles? Be honest. Did all of you know that or did any of you know that? Listen, it's blurry. It's okay. It's okay. Let's just not let it be blurry after tonight. There were two exiles. Israel goes into exile into Assyria. Judah eventually goes into exile into Babylon. Okay? So let's follow the rest of the story. Judah has a few more glimmers of light after this point between 722 and 587. Some of those little glimmers of light, some kings that are noteworthy would be Josiah, good king of Judah, Hezekiah, good king of Judah, But then turn over to chapter 24. We're going to the end of the story. Chapter 24, beginning in verse 10. At that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. Now, you've got to connect the dot. This is the same temple that Solomon built and dedicated. We spent, I don't know how many Sundays to this dedication. The earthly king thing has not gone well. Would you agree? I mean, all this beautiful stuff that was built by these amazing craftsmen, all that went into this place is now being cut up and destroyed. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and all the smiths, none remained except the poorest people of the land. He carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land. He took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon, and the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000 of them. 
and the craftsmen and the metal workers, a thousand, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Madaniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place and changed his name to Zedekiah. So there's actually one more little chance here for Judah. It's not much of a chance, but it's really kind of a chance. This guy has been renamed Zedekiah. Let's see how this goes. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatol, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I mean, seriously, can you believe it? Israel is gone. The Assyrians have destroyed it. Judah has now been destroyed. Everything in the, the temple has been destroyed. All these people have been carried away. And God gives one little tiny last chance to this last dude, Zedekiah. And he messes that up. He did what what is evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah rebelled even against the king of Babylon. I'm going to read one more paragraph, just just so your heart will be completely broken about what's happened to God's people. In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, you see who he's talking about now. You see who he's given specifics about now regarding a king. He's not talking about Israel king anymore. He's not, not talking about Judah kings anymore. He's talking about the king of Babylon right here and given specifics. The king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. They built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. If you read the end of Jeremiah and you read on into Lamentations, you will find and read details about good and disciplined and loving moms boiling their babies so they could eat. You read siege and it's a little six-letter word. or What's that? Seeds that last years around this city where they can't get water or food, where they're eating each other so they can survive. That's what's happened to God's people. The earthly king thing's not going so well. It'll break your heart if you really take in the details. It's, 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 it's sad. It's heartbreaking. So the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls, by the king's garden, through the Chaldeans were around the city, or though the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went to the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king, this last king, brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and they left his eyeballs in for the slaughter. And then they pulled the eyeballs out of his head and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. The earthly king thing hasn't gone, for, gone so well. And this heartbreaking story, if you really take in the details and you really realize this actually happened to God's chosen people, this happened to God's people, the people that experienced the Red Sea parting, people that heard Sinai quake, 
the people that ate food that fell from the sky, the people that drank water that poured from a rock, the people that had seen and experienced miracle and amazing thing one right after another and God's provision over and over again, the people that had marched around a wall and watched it just fall when they shouted. That happened to this people? If you really take it in, then you have to stop and marvel. This story here is the picture of a word that we studied on Sunday mornings for a while. And it's a word that was really hard to study for a while, but we needed to as a church. Y'all know what word I'm thinking of? What is illustrated right here in the nation of Israel? What are they illustrating? They definitely destroyed as a result of what? Their apostasy. You read this story, they illustrate apostasy under every green tree. They took the blessings that God gave them and they threw them back in his face. It's apostasy. You want to know what it looks like? Man, we got a three quarters of a Bible that shows you the story of it. It shouldn't be such a strange thing for us to encounter in Hebrews. <laughs> it ought to be, yeah, I've seen it happen to God's people before. How could that not happen again? Absolutely, it happened over and over and over and over again. They fell back in love with the world and they looked no different than their neighbors. You think that doesn't happen to church folk? Apostasy shouldn't be a strange notion because it's happened so many times already. It's illustrated right here. What does this tell you about Israel, about their nature? I heard a little word back there. Sinful? Yeah. Yeah. Man, shockingly sinful. Lost, okay. What? Willful? What's the, what's the word that God uses a lot in the Bible for the, for the nation of Israel that's a lot like willful? Stiff-necked, yeah. <laughs> Proud, obstinate, foolish. I mean, that the, the words, adjectives start to flow when we really get loosened up and we're honest about it. And we're talking about them. <laughs> right, man, look at them. Golly, woo, these guys are messed up. I have a little list here. Sinful, stiff-necked, easily distracted. Another word, a little phrase that I had, easily satisfied. <laughs> right? It's not that they were, that God wasn't satisfying to them, that God's very satisfying. They're just easily satisfied with less than God. Man, when you really talk about them, boy, the adjectives start to flow. What does this tell you about man? Does it tell you anything about man? Jerry just quoted a passage that I thought I would share. I think it's very appropriate. Romans 3.23. All have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. See, the danger we have is when we read our Bibles and we think we're different than Israel. We do have something different that they don't have. Now, I'm, we're going to talk about that in a minute. But when you think you're cut of a finer cloth in Israel or a different cloth, man, I'm not going to stand close to you because you're going to fall. I don't want you to follow me. And I'm being facetious there, but I'm not. I'm being really honest. Romans 3 is a great passage that 
we connected to a lot as a church when we were going through the He Stinketh series years ago. None is righteous, no, not one. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And a few verses later, all have sinned, just like Jerry quoted, and all fall short of the glory of God. We really get somewhere when we read the story of Israel and we see ourselves in there. If you see it as them, then you're going to miss something. If you see them as us and us as them, then you're really going to be connecting to some treasures. What does it tell you about yourself? We're no different than Israel. We are capable of anything Israel's capable of. I can share this story with you because I'm... 1,500 miles from South Carolina, or I'm, I'm guessing 1,200, I don't know. Christy and I lived in Columbia, South Carolina for years. I was uh, teaching a Sunday school class out there, young marriage class. We had a couple in our class that had a young boy. His name was Hunter. Hunter is um, the coolest kid, one of the coolest kids I've ever known. He's one of the smartest, brightest kids I've ever known, too. I mean, the guy is like, I don't know how old he was when he started speaking but he could speak like, a, like he's talking to an adult. It was just crazy. It's uncanny. But he had a wonderful character, too. We found out this afternoon that he's in jail as of right now because he stabbed two people in Columbia, South Carolina last night. One of our closest friends, I'm on the phone, trying to get to, on the phone this afternoon and say, call me, I want you to know we love you. And we love that boy that's in jail right now. Do you know that any of us are capable of anything? Do you realize that? I don't look at that and say, man, that parents must have messed up. Look at him. Look, he must have messed up. My mind immediately went to a man after God's own heart and look at what he did. Adultery and murder. It doesn't make me proud. It makes me needy. When I really consider these sort of things, it makes me needy. I need thee every hour and I need thee every hour. When you look at the story of Israel, boy, we're going to be a needy bunch. Hey, you got my back? I'm mad at somebody in five points, Columbia, South Carolina, and I'm wanting to go kill them. Come here, let me help you with that. Now, I don't know how that all went down. I haven't even talked to anybody yet. But some of our closest friends from years ago are now having to deal with that, that, you know, frankly, could happen to any of us. I've been mad enough to kill somebody before. Being honest. Have you? Man, I hope you're reading Israel, reading, man, this is our story. How much do you need grace and alien righteousness when you read this story? Do you need it? Is there ever time you don't? Do you ever think that you're going to graduate from that need? You're going to graduate out of it? That you've been clean enough for a certain period of time or you hadn't had some really ugly sin for a period of time where you don't need any more grace for a while? <laughs> like I said, don't let me stand very close to you because it's coming. It's coming. Man, we read Israel's story. It ought to bring us to our knees where we go, thank you for alien righteousness. Thank you that someone fulfilled the law when we obviously can't. Man, it gives me goosebumps thinking about it. 
Knowing what God's people are capable, capable of, let me ask you this. How can we avoid falling to the same sin? To their sin. Falling in love with the world. Under every green tree. Throw, it, throw, some, throw some things out there. How can we avoid, or can we? Do we have any part to play? I mean, most of us in here, I think, believe in God's sovereignty. Does that mean that we're just puppets? Does that mean that we did? Oh, well, I don't know. If God's got it in his plan, then I'm going to stab somebody in five points. I mean, it's going to happen. So, <laughs> where's my knife? <laughs> is that the way it is? So, what can we do? What can we do as a people to not fall to the same sin that they did? Accountability? Yes, absolutely. Man, what, what, what might that look like? Accountability. Okay, speak the truth in love. Absolutely. That word in Ephesians is so cool. It's not even speaking the truth. It's a verb, truthing one another, which implies speech, action, everything you do with each other. Man, we ought to be authentic and true, even if it might hurt their feelings because there's too much at stake. You got to know when you're going down the wrong path and somebody comes to, to you know, admonish you. I haven't even heard the sermon yet, but I know it happened recently. You got to know that's not going to feel great. You can't expect you're going to be like, oh, thanks. That's just what I needed. You're probably going to start by being mad. But you got to move from mad to glad and thankful and say, man, I'm so thankful I got, somebody's got my back because I might go stab somebody in five points right now. I needed that. There's some things we can do, but accountability means we have to have open lives and available lives. We have to be approachable with each other, and we have to be able to speak the truth in love. What else? Say that again. Okay. Love is a command. I'm glad you said that, Robin. Love is a command. When he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, you know, that's commandment. You think, well, if I, have to, if I have to put effort into it, it must not be true. Well, you're not married yet, or you're not going to be married for long. <laughs> now, my marriage started out as a real big feeling. I could not get married. Yeah, man, we're going to get married. And then it moved to a decision. But the feeling, man, the feel, doesn't mean the feeling's gone, but I'm not fueled by that feeling because there's sometimes I don't necessarily feel like loving Christy as a Husband loves his wife as Christ loved the church. She's not in here. She knows I would say this uh, publicly. <laughs> I know. Mary Jane's looking around like, what's she doing right now? <laughs> I've said this publicly before. There, I'm telling you, I know it'd be hard to believe. There's times I'm not all that lovable. <laughs> I mean, it's true. So there are times, that, look, Don's laughing. Even as a neighbor, right? So love is a decision, and it's a command. Yes, I want to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to be intentional about engaging Him. I don't oh, man, it's 7 o'clock. God, we go two hours a night. And I have like a page and a half of notes. I thought, I'm going to really undershoot this, and we're going to talk funny stories. That's what we do in our class. We tell funny stories when I finish early. I'm going to fast forward and share one thing with you. I'm going to read a little excerpt from a book. We're right at 7, so I'm going to go over. Just Scott goes over all the time, so... We're like doing tap dances over there trying to keep the kids entertained, you know. Here's what I want to ask you. A couple questions, really. What do we have now that the nation of Israel didn't have? We have the Holy Spirit, absolutely. 
We have the Holy Spirit. And we have a risen, seated Lord right now who is reigning and ruling and is placing. Remember that image, Corey? Remember that image? Placing all things in subjection. I hope I don't fall off the seat. All things in subjection under his feet. Mmm. Boom. Put it under my feet like a, like a ruler. That's what we have right now. And we have an indwelling Holy Spirit who's not just indwelling us individually, but is indwelling us as the church. He's indwelling the church. We read our Bibles so individually. What you ought to be reading is like, first, look, jot this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, pa- passages that talk about the Holy Spirit indwelling the people of God. Man, we've got accountability. We've got speaking the truth in love. We've got the Holy Spirit. We've got a lot of things going for us now that, the, that Israel didn't have. And we have their story to help us not do the same thing because we know what we're capable of if we read their story. Daniel, y'all pay attention. If we read their story knowing that it, it's our story too. Okay, how badly does Israel need a new king? How badly does Israel need a new king? I mean, are you feeling it yet? I mean, really looking at how bad, we got, a, we got one king with no eyeballs, no kids, in chains. I can't even remember what happened to the other king in Israel, but he's probably dead. I mean, probably killed by Assyrians. Things are not going well with the earthly king. And this is in 722 BC and 587 BC. A big old pregnant pause right there, isn't it? Where the whole of Israel can feel the weight of it. Oh, we need a new king. It looks like only two people were really sitting around saying, man, where is he? Where is he? And that's Simeon and Anna going to the temple every day. Is he here yet? Is he here? Keep me alive long enough to see the new king, the new and true and righteous king. I've held this king today. Yes, you can take me home now, Lord, because a new king has come to Israel. Now, that's what this story should tell you. And it should affect how you read your Gospels. Listen to this excerpt. This is a, you know, y'all, y'all actually charge me on sabbatical to do some study and rest. So part of my study was to spend some time with N.T. Wright. Listen to this. Just a page and a half, and then we'll close. Change the way you read your Bibles, even the Gospels. The strange story of Israel. Let me just tell you quickly. The, name, the title of this book is How God Became King. N.T. Wright is making the argument that the Gospels in some ways have been marginalized. They've been marginalized in some ways as nothing more or barely more than illustrations of our preaching of the epistles. You think about it. It's it's easy to do because there's some beautiful illustrations of what Paul or whoever's saying. But he's saying... In some ways, we miss the gospel, the gospels of what they're saying, where God has become king on earth, where the king has come, and now he is seated and reigning and ruling. That's what the gospels are about, how God became king. Listen to what he says. The story of Israel, too, is a subject for an entire book. We can sum it up like this. Israel's ancient scriptures are framed with a narrative, an unfinished narrative of a certain shape and type. Whether you read the Old Testament as set out in most English Bibles from Genesis to Malachi or whether you read it in in the Hebrew canon from Genesis to Chronicles with the prophets in the middle, you're still left with the sense that this story is supposed to be going somewhere. 
but that it hasn't gotten there yet. It's an unfinished narrative and unfinished agenda. Things are supposed to happen that haven't happened yet. What's more, the story seems to have become badly stalled. It isn't so much like the story of a journey in which the travelers have almost reached their destination and need merely to walk the last few miles down a gentle slope to arrive in fine style. He's English. It's more like the story of a journey in which the travelers have misread the map, lost their way, and become stuck in quicksand with hostile troops closing in all around them. That, I suggest, is the impression we might get if we read straight through the Old Testament. Great beginnings and wonderful visions of God's plan and purposes, then a steady decline and puzzling and shameful multiple failures all ending in a question mark. Just as Genesis chapters 1 through 3 tell the story of the human plight through the pattern of glorious beginnings, rich vocations, and then horrible failure in exile, so Genesis 12 through the end of Chronicles or Malachi tell the story of Israel with tales of glorious beginnings with rich vocations and then horrible failure and exile. Indeed, whoever put Genesis chapters 1 through 3 into its present form was undoubtedly aware of and undoubtedly intended that resonance to be fully heard. That is itself part of the backdrop to my first main point. The problem is that we've all read the Gospels, if we haven't been careful, simply as God's answer to the plight of the human race in general, the solution to chapters 1 through 3 of Genesis. The implied backstory hasn't been the story of Abraham, of Moses, of David, of the prophets. It's been the story of Adam and Eve, of every man sinning and dying and needing to be redeemed. Is it that? Absolutely. But is it only that? Israel's story sneaks in alongside in this version in order merely to offer some advanced promises, some hints and signposts. But the story of Israel itself for most modern readers of the Bible is to be left quietly aside. It was part of the problem, not part of the solution. It seems, after all, to be so dark, such a failure, such a disappointment. If you read your Gospels as the solution to Israel's problem, that's a great place to start. Isn't first and foremost God's solution to saving you? Nope, it's not. Is it that? Absolutely. Is it first and foremost, though? No. So much of what you read, so much of what I'm going to tell you right now is an affront to you, things like election and predestination, things that are so often an affront to contemporary Christians. When you read it first as a solution to Israel's problem, then it makes sense. Then those things that are so unsettling to so many contemporary Christians, they just find a home in you. Like, yeah, that makes total sense. He chose Israel among all peoples, not because there was anything special or shiny or beautiful about them, not because there was anything redeeming in them. He decided to set his love on them. So when he says that I have predestined those for adoption as sons, you read that and go, well, yeah, he's done that from the very beginning. And I'm not cut of any different cloth. I'm cut of the same cloth. And to God be the glory for the grace and the mercy that would reach so low and be mindful of the likes of me and us, the church, Israel. We're going to spend some more time on Sunday mornings engaging this, some of these things about what we're actually doing. But it, it connected nicely tonight. 
where we leave off with Israel and Judah kingless. And there's how many years? 587 years before, I don't know that it was exactly to the year, before Simeon holds that solution to Israel's problem, the high king of heaven. When you read your gospels that way, man, they come to life. All right, I've kept y'all long, longer than I planned, and I apologize for that. If you got kids over there, let's hustle over there and grab them. Let me close in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Thank y'all for your attentiveness tonight. Fifth and sixth graders, y'all did good. We'll work through some of this in the next few weeks. God, we love you. We are so thankful that we have a high king of heaven. We're thankful that we as Gentiles have been brought into this story, that you gave Israel a solution where they needed a true and righteous king, and that you offered that king and the kingdom to those that weren't even part of your original people. The fact that that's extended to us, Lord, I pray just overwhelms us and shocks us. I pray that that would become ultimate reality this week. And whatever little things that we're working through, however big and frustrating and difficult they are, that they will pale in comparison to the shock of being part of this story. I pray we'll be overwhelmed this week with your grace and your mercy. I pray that we'll have in our mind's eye and in our heart vision of a risen, reigning, ruling king who is in session and that we will just marvel being part of the kingdom. We love you, Lord. We give you the rest of this week as an offering. In Christ's name we pray, amen.